1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: I I came across the date 1619 as a high school student and have been obsessed with the erasure of that date. And and, and I came across it accidentally. I didn't come across it uh, in my um, high school curriculum, but... I took a one semester black studies elective and uh, became so angry that there was all this history. No one ever thought we should know that when the class ended, I kept going back to the teacher and asking him to give me more books. And I would read a book and then ask for another. And one of the books that he uh, put in my hand was a book called Before uh, the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett. And um, the title speaks to the fact that you know the Mayflower lands in 1620, every American child learned about the Mayflower, but the white lion came in 1619 and none of us learned about that. So even as like a 16 or 17 year old, I understood the power of that erasure and uh, that that was intentional. So I've been thinking uh, literally since I was in high school about that date and how um, that date kind of served as a metaphor for the way we have not wanted to deal with the institution of slavery.
1: Hey, everybody, you know that you're listening to this moment because you got on your device, you looked us up, and you clicked on play, and for that, we're very grateful. And if you've listened to this uh, to us before, you know that this is an ongoing conversation between Chef Marcus Samuelson and myself, Jason Diakite. You also know that Marcus is in Harlem on Mar- Malcolm X Boulevard, to be exact, and I'm on the island of Södermalm in Stockholm, the capital of Sweden. What you don't know, however, is who today's guest is, and I am so excited about today's episode, and that's probably why I'm drawing this intro out a little bit. Because today we are honored and so grateful to have investigative reporter for the New York Times, MacArthur Fellow—that's the Genius Grant Award winner and Pulitzer Prize winner—creator of the 1619 Project, which exists both in magazine form and as a podcast series. Nicole Hannah Jones, welcome. Yes, yes, yes.
2: Welcome. Thank you.
1: All right, Nicole, let me start by saying, I, I looked you up on Wikipedia earlier today. Just to, I, I like to do that with guests. And the moment I started reading, I stopped on, uh, midway through the first sentence. And it was one word in particular that threw me off. You're described as a controversial journalist. And that made me think, you know, and that's in the opening sentence. And, and that made me think, like, how can the structural defensiveness against reexamining Taking a more candid, truthful, broader, deeper perspective and trying to enrich the narrative of our history still be so strong today, 401 years later. Why do you think that is, Nicole?
0: Well, first, let me say, I don't think I'm considered a controversial journalist, but if you look at the Wikipedia page, there's an ongoing battle with people who don't uh, appreciate me, who keep editing the page uh, to make it appear that I'm controversial. I I haven't checked it recently, and that must be a new addition because um, within the field and broadly, I'm not considered a controversial journalist. Um, So interesting. but. Uh, Clearly, you know, there has been a lot of opposition to my work around the 1619 Project and uh, really a rejection to centering slavery in the American narrative and the contributions of Black Americans. When you ask why, I mean, the entire reason... The 1619 project had to come into existence is because we have wanted to be in denial about how central and foundational slavery uh, was to uh, the founding of this country, to the country that we would eventually build, and then of course the legacy of slavery uh, permeates uh, so many aspects of our society. And to see that argued in the New York Times was uh,
2: disconcerting well, I, to me. I, I, I just a lot. have to oh, say, say, I just have to say that the 1619 It's the most incredible gift to black and brown people all over the world. You know, the work of reestablishing, rewriting or reconnecting our journey is so important and people all over the world connect to it. So I just want to say this is the reason why I go to New York Times still daily, every day. And when I heard it, both me and Jason were just like, we're like, when is the next dish, when is next piece coming out? And we've been going back and forth. You know, I'm a chef. So maybe the farmer, the farmer's story is the one that I'm like, that's my dude. But the way you connect past and present, it's unbelievable. It, it's such an important piece of work. So thank you for that.
1: And I, I've been thinking so much about this kind of collective sensitivity and in, in taking a more truthful look at our history. Um because I live in Sweden, Nicole, and it's literally a different world from the United States. And, and no doubt racism exists here as it does in all countries. The interesting thing about Sweden and what sets it aside from other European countries is that it sees itself as a colorblind country to the point that in 2017, the word race was removed from the discrimination uh, legislation. So race doesn't uh, doesn't appear in the legal in the, in the law of, of this land anymore and data by race is no longer col- uh, collected and incredibly this was done in the name of anti-racism and so you know 1619 has been widely circulated in this country and it really inspires me and a lot of people in comprehensively kind of rethinking Sweden's history as well and I mean Sweden was a small fish in the colonial era but involved to some extent in the transatlantic slave trade but Most of the cotton imported to Sweden during the 1800s came from the American South. And Sweden was deeply affected by the uh, outbreak of the Civil War because the cotton stopped coming in. It became way more expensive. But these pieces of our history are so seldom told and few have reckoned with these parts of our past. I wanted to ask you, as someone who's really at the forefront of doing this in in the United States. How do you think that the the collective guilt and shame play into the, this collective sensitivity about re-examining history?
0: Um, So, you know, it's interesting what you say about Sweden, because I think that uh, America's obsession with race is a double-edged sword, right? Like we Mm. measure race everywhere and we categorize Mm. on every government document. I mean, It's good because we can uh, count things and measure things, but it also speaks to, you know, how obsessed we are with ensuring people stay in their place in the caste system. So I always go back and forth about which is the better system. And of course, when you don't categorize and you can't measure inequality, it becomes much harder to kind of assess uh, the degree of, of racial inequality in a uh, community or in a country. But mm. um, most, for most of the history, and I would say even now, the, the United States' obsession with uh, cataloging race has not been to the benefit of Black Americans or to actually eradicate racial inequality. So I'm, I'm not sure which is a better system. Um maybe somewhere in between. I think, though, that we want to, the idea of being colorblind one on its face is ridiculous. Um, right. No one is asking <laughs> anyone not to notice the differences, uh, both physically and historic differences. It's what do you do with that information? That's the problem. So uh, the fact that we feel we have to ignore and be colorblind um, is a, a deficit mindset. Because what it's saying is, I won't pay attention to this flaw, or I'm not going to pay attention to this thing that is different. Um, When really, it's like, what do you do with that information? Do you treat people differently? Do you erect the architecture that divides people based on that? Um, And we can't really grapple with this history. And, And I think what makes, it's not what I think, what makes the United States different is all the other colonial powers that took place in uh, the transatlantic slave trade had existed for hundreds if not thousands of years before they engaged in slavery. They were not defined by slavery. The United States comes into being as a slaveocracy. You can't simply say, oh, that was a bad period of time, but look at everything else we did before. Uh, Everything about our story is linked to slavery. But also, we were the only one of those countries founded on the ideas of universal rights, that all men are created equal, endowed by the creator with inalienable rights. You know, Britain didn't pretend that it believed in universal rights. Mm -hmm. Um, None of these, Spain, Portugal, go down the list. So, to combination of being founded in slavery and not simply being able to just purge that, I think... uh, you know, people often compare United States to Germany um, following the Holocaust and how yeah. Germany purged, you know, all remnants of Nazism. If we were to do that in the United States, if we were to try to purge all remnants of slavery, we would have to get rid of George Washington monuments, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Madison, who was the father of the Constitution, um, half of the, you know, it's yeah. like, we, we, it's impossible to do that.
1: Having said that, Germany also paid reparations. Yes, exactly.
0: But even, again, it's not... Because it Mm. it was not... Well, it took a long time for Germany to pay reparations, Mm. too. Mm -hmm. Clearly not as long as the fight for Black Americans to get reparations for slavery. But on top of, like, we can't really purge this because to purge um, the monuments to enslavers means we have to purge our entire founding, um, Mm. which, you know, we clearly don't want to do. But also there aren't really very many Jewish people left in Germany. You don't have to every day in the United States, every day we have to look at the people whom we did this to. Um, There's no separation whatsoever. So for, for that reason, our response has been, to downplay it, to marginalize it, to pretend that slavery wasn't that uh, central to America, that it wasn't that big of a deal, and to really apo- be apologists for the institution. I think that's what sets us apart from uh, the other colonial powers.
2: Nicole, can I ask you about, I want to go back to the mid 70s. You know, it's like, you know, in Waterloo, you know, it's like your, your mother has a Czech and then on a British side or background, your father is black, like how was the family in terms of, was there, tell, talk to me a little bit about your upbringing, your childhood in Iowa.
0: Yeah, so um, my parents met, my mother was from rural Iowa and she came to um, what would be my hometown to go to college. And my father used to go on campus, and and that's how my parents met, and um, my mother's parents were not happy at all. Uh, They disowned my mother for a period of time and um, didn't speak to her, Stop paying for her college. My dad had to help her uh, pay for college and didn't really uh, re-embrace my mother until my my older sister was born, so my older sister was the first grandchild, and it was uh, the birth of this first grandchild that brought my uh grandparents back into my mom's life um, with that said, other family members like my uh, mother's grandmother you know refused to disown her and just, you know, dealt with it as well as some other uh, white relatives on that side. But once that happened, uh, I grew up around my grandparents. My grandparents were great to me and my sisters, um, but they also were racist um, to Black people who weren't related to them. And I, I think, you know, what that has taught me is... We have this belief that because someone has an intimate relationship with a Black person that they can't be racist, when that's clearly not true. We are able to form close bonds uh, with individuals and still have a larger and succumb to a larger uh, worldview of anti-Blackness. But my childhood was, you know, a very working class Childhood lived on the black side of town. My grandparents and my white side of the family lived about an hour away. And we saw them frequently, but all my black family lived in my hometown. And I grew up around. I mean, that that's how I was raised. My dad, at a really young age, sat my sisters down and told us, "Your mom might be white, but you guys are black, and uh-huh. the world's going to see you as black, and that's how you're going to go in the world." And and so we did. So I've never been. Um, one of those mixed people who, um, was conflicted or felt like they were living in between two worlds. I've never felt that way. And I don't even, I mean, clearly I'm I'm biracial, but I identify as black.
1: I have the same, I mean, I have the say, I have a white mother, African American, white American mother, African American dad. And, and my father went about, you know, raising me the same way, like you're black, you're going to grow up, you're going to be a, a black person, the world is going to see you as black. You just have to accept that and and, and learn how to maneuver and navigate through the world uh, as a black body, basically. I grew up in Sweden, you know, and going to an all-white school and everything, I definitely was in between worlds. and was trying to, you know, use what my dad was telling me, but in an all-white context. And it was very, it was a lot of difficult years and years of kind of identity of, crises, basically. Yeah,
0: I could see that. Mm-hmm. And it's different, you know, in the context of, of a country like Sweden versus the context of a country mm-hmm. like the United States. I mean, but, even in the but, United but, States, you can be in a white environment, but but race and blackness is everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, I, I don't know, I, I realized pretty young, you know, my dad told me that and there's an the intellectual part of that conversation, but also that with my white family, I was always uh, half black. So mm-hmm. I wasn't mm-hmm. ever, you know, they, they, like <laughs> okay. I was related to them, but it, but with my black family, I was black. Like there wasn't mm-hmm. like, she's half black, she's half white, like I was black. And I just was like, I'm not gonna spend my life mm-hmm. uh, trying to straddle a line. And particularly mm-hmm. when we know in America, to be Black American is to be mixed anyway, right? Like Frederick Douglass was half white. Uh, The average Black person, when you test them genetically, a quarter of our ancestry goes to uh, Europe. So that is the Black experience. And I appreciated my dad kind of setting us down and telling us that, but life was also teaching me that at the same time. And I I truly, I think that mixed people who have a hard time, you know, fitting in or feeling like they don't belong anywhere are not mixed people who are raised around Black people. That's how I feel. I feel like Mm.
2: when you are mixed and raised around Black people, you don't have I live in
0: the
2: hood. I have another question around, you know, Portland. You went out to go to work in Portland and Portland is a city that Jason and I talked about here on this moment. When you see what's happening and you worked in the city, so clearly you have love for that city. Can you give us your... You can beat them, in your thoughts on what's happening. Wait, did you
0: say I have love for that city? No, but I mean,
2: when you've lived in a place, I was
0: never so happy to get out of a city great. in my <laughs> life.
2: That's great. <laughs> I, I, that was the wrong question. I meant you've lived there, so you've had an experience there. So I
0: do. You know, I uh, I moved I moved to Portland because they. At that time, it was a newspaper where if you wanted to become a narrative uh, journalist, they taught narrative journalism. And mm-hmm. uh, so I went there for career advancement, but never, you know, I had told myself after growing up in Iowa that I would never live in a uh, city that white again. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, somehow ended up in Portland. So Portland, um, what's happening in Portland right now is like not surprising to me because uh, you know, there are all these concerns that white people have kind of taken over the movement there, uh, that, that it is no longer about black people really anymore. And, and that, that's like so not surprising to me. People who have watched Portlandia, like that's real life. That's how it is. This is a place that uh, believes it's progressive And it's so progressive because it is the whitest major city in the country. It is whiter than Salt Lake City, which seems impossible. Um, So it's easy to be progressive when you have never really had to deal with Black people. In the history of Oregon, when Oregon uh, entered statehood, Black people were barred in the state constitution of Oregon from moving into the state. And I think it might be the only state in the country where Black people were prohibited by the Constitution from actually moving into the state. Um, Many of the original settlers of Oregon were former Confederates. So it has this very kind of progressive, um, but it's progressive when it comes to like trees and gay rights and women's rights. But when it comes to race, um, that was probably one of the most disenfranchised Black populations that I've ever lived in. and so to see like them take a movement that was ostensibly supposed to be about black lives and then turns into whatever the hell it, it turned into now. Uh, I'm not surprised.
1: Hearing you speak about Portland, it, it makes me feel like you're describing Sweden in a way because, you know, because. Yeah, I, I <laughs> think very Sweden- similar. Yeah. yeah, And of course, you're welcome to come to Sweden at (laughs) any time. We'd love to have you. But I mean, Sweden was so demographically homogenous uh, uh, for so many years. And I think that's what led them to believe that they were a post-racial kind of utopian society. But now that it is much more multiracial uh, and, and we basically are... Demography is a map of the past you know the wars that have happened over the past three decades, you know with uh, some, uh, you know people coming from the Horn of Africa from the Middle East, obviously from Afghanistan and fr- and you know and then the steady trickle of migrants from uh, West and Central Africa now all of a sudden or for the past ten years, Sweden has had to grapple with the fact that it is in fact a you know a, a, a society that's deeply racist in so many ways. And it's, it's interesting as you see in, in, in a city that's all white or a country that's all white, then of course you have no problems with racism because your bias, your bias has never come into play, you know?
0: Right. I mean, this is, this is much the way that the North in America got this um, reputation of being, you know, uh, the opposite of the South, not racist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But that's only because, you know, until the turn of the ninth, uh, the 20th century, no black people really lived in the North The populations were very small. And then as soon as you saw millions of uh, black Southerners migrating to the North, the exact same type of violence, uh, segregation oh. that you saw in the South happened in the North. And so, uh, Portland uh, epitomizes that to me is, um, Yeah, it's easy to to say that you are racially progressive when you don't have to deal with Black people. And then uh, when Black people started moving to Portland after World War II, they were segregated in uh, North and Northeast Portland. Uh, You can go to Portland right now, and there are all Black elementary schools and all Black high schools in a city that is 6% Black. Like, that shouldn't even be possible, but it is. And what they consider, like, The Hood schools would be like a fabulous school in Brooklyn, trust me. Hold
3: up.
1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: What I think is so beautiful with 1619 because it sets a new level of journalism, right? That people can connect in all over the world and orally, these voices, these people, that you humanize and experience that it's just, for me, it just changed information, how information and history can flow. How long did you work on it to because it's it's obviously a, a masterpiece. So you must have worked on it for a very long time. Obviously some time. Uh
0: <laughs> thank you. Thank Most you
1: Most definitely.
0: That. Yeah. You know, there's like so how long did I actually like work on it would be about 9 months from the time I pitched it to the time I published. Uh which is kind of insane considering what we did and those were some uh crazy months. Um but I've been in some ways working on it for like 25 years. Um, I, I came across the date 1619 as a high school student and have been obsessed with the erasure of that date. And, and, and I came across it accidentally. I didn't come across it, uh, in my, um, high school curriculum, but I took a one semester black studies elective and, uh, became so angry that there was all this history. No one ever thought we should know that when the class ended, I kept going back to the teacher and asking him to give me more books. And I would read a book and then ask for another. And one of the books that he uh, put in my hand was a book called before uh, the Mayflower by the Bennett. And um, the title speaks to the fact that, you know, the Mayflower lands in 1620, every American child learns about the Mayflower, but the white lion came in 1619 and none of us learned about that. So, even as like a 16 or 17 year old, I understood the power of that erasure and uh, that that was intentional. So I've been thinking uh, literally since I was in high school about that date and how um, that day kind of served as a metaphor for the way we have not wanted to deal with the institution of slavery. And so much of my work um, through the last decade has been about really trying to connect the presence to these intentional historical decisions that were made. And I used to joke, we had this ongoing joke amongst my editors that one day I was going to get us back to slavery because usually I'm always starting in like 1950 or 1910 uh, and building this case, but I hadn't been able to get back to slavery. And the 1619, you know, as the date was approaching the anniversary year, I just knew that like so much of uh, the history of slavery and the history of black Americans, this 400th anniversary was going to pass with no acknowledgement in American society. And that most Americans didn't know the date 1619. They weren't going to know the date 1619. And and I was going to do something about it. So uh, the short is you know, nine or 10 months, but the longest I've been, I've been thinking about this and the arguments, like the basic premise, mm. of course, of the project is almost nothing about modern American society has been left untouched by slavery. Mm. And uh, I've been making that argument for a long time. I always tell people, just name something and I can trace it back to slavery. So,
1: <laughs> And you have engraved that year now in, I'd say, the consciousness of a lot of, not only Americans, but people all around the world, thanks to your work. Um, thank you that's been amazing
0: to see that um that that was my goal to actually seem like a very uh I don't want to say arrogant but you know kind of ridiculous goal to say (laughs) I want to create this project so that every American knows the date 1619 Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. to actually see like the way that is that that date is constantly evoked uh now Mm -hmm. and uh, (laughs) that even the president you know I don't believe that the president has read the 1619 Project, and um, you know, I don't think it's leading his followers to say, let me, let me read the 1619 Project, but his followers also now know the year
1: 1619. <laughs> exactly, so, it's all good. Even those <laughs> that don't agree. No. Exactly. Speaking, Speaking to what you were saying about that erasure, you know, my dad also just sent me this Sean King piece talking about the third verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. And I mean, I'm just finding out about this now when I'm 45 years old. Mm. It's like, you know, how could anyone ever have stood for that? I mean, had we known, right?
2: So that erasure
1: is so deep. He
0: was an enslaver. He was Mm. an enslaver, right? So again, it's like we we keep wanting to pretend that uh, slavery was not the true United States, but it was. And um, even in the original declaration, Thomas Jefferson talks about slavery and he talks about the same thing that Francis Scott Key is talking about in the Star Spangled Banner, which is that Britain is stoking insurrection amongst those enslaved and that this Mm -hmm. is one of the crimes that the King of England is committing against the colonists is he is causing the enslaved to rebel against them. Um, So... That doesn't end up getting in the original or in the declaration because you, they couldn't get enough southern uh, colonists to sign it with that passage about slavery because they rightly thought if they put that in there and said slavery was wrong and the King of England forced it upon us that they would have to abolish slavery, which, you know, obviously they weren't trying to do. But it's like understanding when you see all of that, then it's like the red pill in the matrix.
3: Like mm. suddenly,
0: everything starts to make sense, and you understand that this uh, again that this erasure has served a purpose, and uh, we
2: have borne the brunt of of that erasure. The other year, and I was I was thinking about it today. I hope she does it before. But you know, the way you trace back everything to American slavery, I trace it back to Prince. So. After Purple Rain, I trace it back to Prince. Sure. So after <laughs> Purple Rain, there was a couple of albums, and then came Sign of the Times. So the other big year is 2042. So when you th- what, what do we need to know about 2042? And will you document it? Will you tell us about 2042? or Because obviously for a lot of people, it's a big fear when, when, uh, about that year, about that time. Are you talking about
0: when the demographics shift to the United mm-hmm. States? Mm-hmm. Um... You know, I think that we are putting way too much emphasis on the idea that once white people are no longer the majority, that they will somehow lose power. There's nothing about the study of American society that leads us to believe that. Um, White people were the minority in the South for most, in many parts of the South, for much of the history of this country, uh, including Mississippi, which was the most repressive, Uh, fascist state in the United States. So I, um, and the other, and the inverse of that is even in 2042, white people will not be the minority but they will be the largest in the plurality. And that assumes that every person who is not white will come together in some cohesive mass and work together. Uh, We know that that's not true. We know, we know that. Uh, anti-blackness is rife around, amongst other non-white groups. Um, we have not seen a cohesiveness. I actually think that um, if conservatives get smart, they will do to a significant percentage of Latinos what, they, what white people have done to uh, Italians, to the Greek. Uh, they will become white. So um, I, I just don't, I, when people say our demographics are destiny. What we're seeing right now, President Obama won with a minority of the white vote. And what was that followed by? Massive uh, introduction of voter suppression laws of tactics to suppress the black and Latino vote in order to hold on to power. In this country, we haven't had a Republican uh, who won the presidency by popular vote in, I think, something like 30 years. Yet we've had Republican presidents because Mm -hmm. they win. Uh, with the Electoral College, which actually is not democratic. So I think we'll just see more repression and more efforts to hold on to power. Or look at New York City. New York City is a minority white city, but who controls the finance, right? Who who, who controls the levers of power in the city? And where does the poverty and disenfranchisement land? So when people say that It doesn't show to me a complexity of understanding the way that race actually works in this country.
1: It's also leaving out the colonial subjugation of of the continent of Africa. I mean, we're white minorities in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Nigeria.
0: South Africa is probably like the the most uh, analogous to the United States, especially since some of them studied our system of apartheid, uh, to figure out how to do it there. Um, so yeah, I I think we, we want to somehow believe that, but, um, what we're seeing right now with white militia coming out to these rallies, like this, uh, effort to stoke a race war is about consolidating and holding power as our country's demographics change.
1: Having said all that, I, I wonder, you know, do you see in your work i mean you also talk about that the needle has moved you know that things yeah, have I mean, gotten I'm better
0: i'm
1: not a since slave that's true no no there you go and since your dad's day things have actually gotten better albeit slowly but do you see a path forward is do we is there a path for not only the united states but the world to move into a, a kind of a post racial america or is that just a utopian pipe dream
0: I mean, yes, progress is, I mean, you would be silly not to acknowledge the progress that has been made, and particularly for a small group of Black people who have been able to go into elite institutions and get a middle-class existence. But uh, I have two things to say to that. One, um, I just did a project called 1619 that shows that people of African descent have been here for 400 years. So the time for marking progress is over. Um, we should be equal. We should be treated as full and equal citizens in a land we have been in um, for 400 years and a land we have been in longer than almost any other group. So when people want us to constantly pay attention to progress, to me, I, I find that insulting because it is saying that we still have to wait for our equality and we cannot expect full equality right now. Um, the other thing is when you look at probably the most important indicator of well-being, which is wealth. Black wealth has been unchanged for 70 years. The Black-white wealth gap, unchanged for 70 years, which predates the civil rights, well, falls in the in the middle of the civil rights movement. So overall, we have not, we've seen le- progress with the law and the end of legal discrimination, but not progress in the area that Dr. King was focusing on before he was assassinated, which is understanding that having the legal right to access certain spaces is useless if you can't afford to access those spaces. And Mm -hmm. that from the beginning, slavery was a system of economic exploitation. Jim Crow was a system of economic exploitation. It wasn't just about Black people not liking white people. It was about creating racism to justify the economic exploitation of Black people. And to this day, uh, a Black family with children has one cent on the dollar of wealth for white Americans. And that, that has remained unchanged. So we need to be very careful with these conversations about progress. And and, and, I, and I feel, you know, I don't feel like black people are doing this, but when people who aren't black say that they're asking us to be grateful that we don't live in Jim Crow anymore. I don't feel like I need to be grateful for that in a country that uh, our people have been in for uh, centuries. And there's a difference between can we get there and will we get there? Can we get there? Absolutely. All of this was created. All of it can be uncreated. Will we get there? I, I don't think so. I, I, there's nothing, you know, studying history can tend to make one, uh, I, I would say, realistic. Some people say pessimistic. Uh, there's nothing about our history that makes us, makes it a, me believe that we will get there.
2: Now, I want to turn a little bit to the election because I love you have your vote sign on. And, you know, with Kamala Harris, she shows the world now another side of blackness. So you can be both Asian-American and black African-American, right? So this, our, our, the, it's, our experience is layered, it's, it's complex, it's beautiful, and blackness has so many different wings to it. Uh, what's your hopes and what's your biggest fear of this election coming up?
0: My biggest fear is uh, that we get another four years of a white nationalist in the office or um, that the election is so unsettled um, that you know he's already been kind of laying the groundwork that he might contest or he might not leave. So that's my fear. You know, we really and this isn't about you know political party affiliation. we cannot afford in this country another four years of this uh, yeah. in terms of um, national cohesiveness, which we've never had, but the degree to which he is willing to openly um, exacerbate racial divisions in, and, and in many ways, call for violence. Um, clearly the pandemic response, you know, um, the eroding of democracy the authoritarian tendencies the attacks on the press i I just don't think you know america will will not be the same for a very very long time if he's elected again so that's my biggest fear
1: yeah and i wanted to ask you also nicole i mean just basically how is it being an investigative reporter in the united states today and also working for i mean your workplace is frequently called out by the president and frequently kind of bashed by him uh you know Openly, how is it doing your work today?
0: Well, you know, so I don't, I don't cover politics, which uh, until recently, until Trump started becoming obsessed with the sixteen nineteen project, uh, really buffered me from a lot of that. But for the New York Times, uh, it's been good. Like our, we have the most uh, subscribers that we've ever had in the history of the paper, and I, I think what has happened is people clearly understand the necessity of journalism and accountability and investigative journalism and are willing to pay for it where, uh, you know, for years because of Facebook and Google, people just felt they should be able to get news for free as if it doesn't cost money to produce good Mm -hmm. uh, reporting. But I think for us, I mean, clearly there's a larger problem with uh, the erosion of trust in the media, the erosion of understanding that there are actually a set of facts. Everything is not relative. I think that's been very harmful in general and that this president has exploited that and exacerbated that. And um, in in ways that I am very fearful we won't come back from before The New York Times as an institution, uh, I think it
2: it, it has really shown uh, the necessity of what we do. I want my last question to you is Black Lives Matters. There's two doors. If Trump wins, the marches and the everything will continue. If Biden wins, how does Black Lives Matters movement look like in, in a Harris-Biden win?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I try to never predict the future because you're almost always going to end up looking foolish. Um, but I... I think a lot about when Trump won and the Women's March uh, occurred, and I kept seeing these signs that white women were holding, and it said, if Hillary had won, we'd be at brunch right now. And I was like, that sums up the entire problem, is you felt that Trump is the biggest problem in this country, and you are willing to ignore, you're not going to be marching for the people who have been struggling and afraid um, before Trump. You're only here because it is in your own personal interest right now. And then you will abandon this multiracial coalition that showed up at that march as soon as someone else is in office. And and that is my fear. How do you, uh, you know, so many people join this movement because of who the president is. I mean, this is the same reason I think people... In some ways, the response to the 1619 project was so big. If I had done this project, if, if the anniversary had happened to land under Obama, you would have heard a lot of people saying, "Why? there's a Black <coughs> man in the White House. Why are you bringing this up? We're post-racial. Mm-hmm. We've moved on. Uh, Trump clearly uh, defies that notion. So I, I'm worried about, will we be able to keep the pressure applied to actually get <coughs> the type of transformative change that this uh, moment requires? Uh, if Biden wins. At the same time, um, we have to have someone competent in the White House. And it's, it's, it's order of needs. People are dying right now. Um, so we have to have something better than that. But the, the, if you study the civil rights movement, you know that the civil rights movement begins at the end of World War I and doesn't bear its full fruit until the 1960s. It's decades. So the expectation that this movement will overnight produce those results um, just is not an understanding of social movements in this country. You have to keep up the pressure. Um, the fact that they've been able to move Black Lives Matter from being considered fringe to within a decade, less than a decade. I mean, even the NFL somehow thinks that they paint end racism in the end zone. You know, the same <laughs> NFL, though, that, that still won't bring Colin Kaepernick back in. Um, You can see the movement building, but I just fear that once again, it won't be long before Black folks are mostly fighting this alone.
1: Nicole Hannah-Jones, on behalf of, you know, Black and brown bodies all over the world and in the United States, thank you for the work you're doing. And thank you for coming on this moment. And just it's such a privilege just to hear you speak and to uh, just to listen to you is just inspiring and wonderful.
0: Thank you for having me on. Mark. I hope to meet you one day, you know, when real life was happening, Jenny's Supper mm. Club. Uh, I only get to Harlem like three times a year because, you know, that's like going out of town.
1: But <laughs> Brooklyn to Harlem. You well, well, you live in Brooklyn, that's, that's like hike. going out of town.
0: Yeah. So you have to plan yeah. it like a month in advance. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, just, I'm just such a, an admirer of, of what you've done in the community and how you always are an advocate of the community. So Thank hopefully... You. And stay end, controversial. You come <laughs> to
1: America, stay controversial it takes it's controversial. the right side of <laughs> I, I know, you're I'm on the right I'm side of history that
0: and tweet this shit out I didn't even
1: yeah that's why I was like yeah I stopped on that word I was like what she didn't you know it wasn't somebody who is well-meaning who wrote this you know uh, but that's how Wikipedia works uh, yeah
0: anyway I, I enjoyed the conversation thank,
1: thank you so much
0: yeah. thank you so much all right bye bye
1: This moment is produced by Mohammed El Abed. It's an ACAST recording and can be heard on all platforms. So stay tuned, more depth coming your way soon.